daily bedight the gallant knight in sunshine and in shadow had journeyed long singing a song in search of el dorado but he grew old this knight so bold and o'er his heart a shadow fell as he found no spot of ground that looked like el dorado and as his strength failed him at length he met a pilgrim shadow shadow he said where can it be this land of el dorado over the mountains of the moon down the valley of the shadow ride boldly ride the shade replied if you seek for el dorado back in the 1970s and 1980s when i was a young kid and we had two or three tv channels like kids that age all over the world i spent my saturday mornings usually watching cartoons and then old movies cartoons came on pretty early and there might have been two or three hours of cartoons from maybe 6 a.m or 7 a.m in the morning and afterwards there'd usually be one or two old movies to watch i saw all of the planet of the apes series um the original planet of the apes series on saturday mornings like that i saw all the johnny weismuller tarzan movies like that and um i saw loads and loads of old westerns or as i used to call them back then cowboy movies i took about half of my moral education from those movies i absolutely went into the world seeing myself as a character from the magnificent seven or the sons of katie elder or any of a hundred other great westerns i saw at that time essentially what i learned from them was that you had to stand up for what was right no matter the cost and that presented uh, problems when you have a 12 year old understanding of just exactly what is right you hit the world pretty hard and dumb to paraphrase lydia lunch in those circumstances and you do some good things you do some bad things and you definitely suffer quite a bit and learn some lessons Johnny Weismuller swimming. The cry they built for the ape man character, high pitched and distorted. The obvious suffering of animals. The power of irony and the importance of irony. Landscapes so wide they hurt my inner city eyes. The arch and effete poses of movie cowboys, both standing and moving. A rebellion of primates and what that suggested, mostly about metaphor. A distrust of language that demanded straining towards accuracy and brevity. A red shirt worn by John Wayne. Sacred objects, mostly knives and totem animals. Movies teaching me how to look, move and live. I remember all these things from my Saturday morning TV watching, and I remember El Dorado. El Dorado is a 1966 film. It was directed and produced by Howard Hawks. I noticed on the credits that that's the way he's credited, directed and produced. So because that's unusual, it would normally be produced and directed. Um, I thought that was probably important to him, so I would keep it that way. I would have called it a John Wayner back then. We used to call films John Wayners. That's how big John Wayne was. Um, and we, uh, or I would have, could have called it a cowboy movie, called it a Western. It stars not only John Wayne, but Robert Mitchum. Hence the tagline at the time on the posters, it's the big one with the big two which is not a very good tagline, but that's how big Wayne and Mitchum were. I imagine it was something similar to when the movie, the Michael Mann movie, Heat, came out and De Niro and Pacino were actually in, in a scene together, in scenes together in that movie. 
so stars John Wayne, Robert Mitchum, James Caan, very young James Caan, Charlene Holt, Paul Fix, Arthur Honecutt, and Michelle Carey. It was uh, written by Lee Brackett. We'll speak a little bit more about um, about her later on. The plot of the film is um, basically John Wayne plays a a gunfighter, a gun for hire called Cole Thornton. He comes to the town of El Dorado right at the beginning. Um, he's been offered a job working for a large rancher called um, uh, Bart Jason. When he arrives in town, the sheriff of the town, J.P. Hara, played by Robert Mitchum, approaches him and you can tell very quickly that they're old friends. They've, they've, they've worked together before. They've rode together before. And um, um, J.P. Hara tells him that Bart Jason is a large rancher who is trying to bully and intimidate um, a family called the McDonald's off their smaller ranch to get their water rights so he can expand. Um, that's not the story that Bart Jason has told Cole Thornton. Um, but it's very clear that if Cole Thornton goes and works for um, for Bart Jason, then they're going to have to go up against each other. And uh, Cole Thornton doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to be on the side of bullies, you can tell. But he also doesn't want to go up against his old friend, J.P. Hara. So he goes out to, Cole Th to um, Bart Jason's ranch to give him the news that he's not going to work for him. At the same time, news has traveled around the area that Cole Thornton has arrived and the assumption is made that he's going to work for Bart Jason. This news gets to the McDonald's and they go back, nearly all of them go back to their family ranch to hole up for protection. But they leave one of the sons um, on lookout and if he sees Cole Thornton, uh, he is supposed to just shoot his rifle into the air and then hightail it back to um I tell it back to the ranch. But what happens is, as Cole Thornton is returning to El Dorado from turning down the job with Bart Jason, he passes by where this young boy is, is on lookout, but the boy has fallen asleep in the heat of the, you know, the, the sun. And he wakes up, the boy wakes up and gets a fright and just shoots at, 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 um, at Cole Thornton. Uh, Cole Thornton reacts, shoots him, shoots him in the stomach. Uh, he goes to see how he is. Um, and while he's sort of trying to get things organized so he can tend to him, the boy who has been told by his father that people who get shot in the stomach die in great pain and there's no hope for them, uh, has another gun hidden and shoots himself. So Cole Thornton brings the body back to to the McDonald's um, ranch, and Mr. McDonald, he, you know, the father seems to accept that this has been done in good faith, and it's just a dreadful accident, and that he has some responsibility himself, and that he told his son these stories about what happens to people who are gut shot. Um, the youngest daughter, though, Joey. She doesn't uh, believe this and she rides off and um, she goes and she hides and she waits for Cole Thornton as he leaves and um, she she shoots him. Um, not fatally, he disarms her eventually, but uh, the upshot of that is that he ends up, Cole Thornton ends up with a bullet in his back that's very close to his spine and the local doctor understands that he doesn't have the skill to to operate on it. Um, so he's got to, you know, he's got to wait until a better doctor is visits the town, and that means that Cole Thornton, for the rest of the film, he has um, occasions when this bullet presses against the nerve and he loses feeling in his right arm or in his right side, which is his gun hand. Um, so some time passes. Uh, Thornton's in another town. He's he's in that town one night, just playing dominoes, having his having his uh, dinner in the cantina. And a um, group of tough-looking guys walk in, sit down, start drinking. After them comes uh, James Caan, uh, wearing a, a funny-looking hat and not wearing a gun. In comes James Caan, and he approaches one of the guys in there and tells him that, um, that he's here to kill him, that he was one of three men who um, murdered the man who was like his surrogate father. 
guy called Johnny Diamond, who was a riverboat gambler. And, you know, he's caught up with the other with the others and he's the last and he's here to kill him. And. Um, uh, the guy stands up, he doesn't, you know, he. Um, the leader of this this group is a guy called Nels McLeod um, and he pressures the guy that James Khan is 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 after to stand up and to face him down because he's curious to see how he's going to get this done seeing as he's not even carrying a gun that guy pulls his gun James Khan takes a knife out from um from hidden behind uh, the back of his shirt collar throws the knife at him kills him um afterwards there's a um another one of the guys who's with Nels McLeod pulls a gun he's or comes in he says you know you ki you killed that guy because he killed your friend well he's a friend of mine let's see you do that again pulls a gun um called Thornton John Wayne's character shoots the gun out of his hand and um Nels McLeod at that point just sort of calms everything down um and Thornton and McLeod have a conversation um they're both professional gunfighters and McLeod reveals that he's on his way to El Dorado. He's on his way to El Dorado to sort things out for this rancher called um, Bart Jason. And from that point, we sort of know that um, a couple of things are going to happen. Number one, there's going to be a sort of a mentor-mentee relationship between um, a father-son relationship, basically, uh, between John Wayne and James Caan. James Caan with the wonderful character name of Alan Alan. Badillion Traherne, so he gets called Mississippi, um, and that John Wayne, uh, Cole Thornton, is going to go back to El Dorado to help J.P. Hara um, fight off Nels McLeod and, um, and Bart Jason's uh, thugs. And that is what happens, um, complicated by the fact that when they return to El Dorado, they find that J.P. Hara, Robert Mitchum, has had his heart broken in the meantime and turned to the drink and turned to the drink in a big way. He's at the bottom of a bottle at this point. So he's basically living in the in the holding cells in the jail, drinking whiskey all the time, filthy and drunk with uh, Bull. Um, Bull, who's an old, Arthur Honeycutt, he's an old Indian fighter, uh, who's his only deputy. And the stage is set then for a drama um, that... Um, revolves around the fact that eventually Bart, J uh, Bart Jason is taken prisoner and put in the in the holding cells so you have this situation where you've got um John Wayne Robert Mitchum James Caan and uh, Arthur Honeycutt with the sort of main bad guy locked up in their cells but surrounded by, um, you know, thugs and impressional gunfighter and Nels, and Nels McLeod and, and besieged in that way. And it's, um, it's kind of an inspiration. I would imagine it's, it's, it's one of those films that would have been an inspiration to an extent for John Carpenter's uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Um, it is actually, it's, it's one of three films, and we'll talk more about this later as well. It's one of three films that Howard Hawks made that are kind of remakes of each other. Um, starting with Rio, um, Rio Bravo going on to El Dorado and then finishing with, uh, Rio Lobo. And they all have that same theme. I saw this film probably for the first time when I was 11 or 12, something like that, years old. Um, and I was definitely at that stage, which I think is probably an essential stage in the development of someone's appreciation of the arts, where it really was important to me to sort of identify with characters. It really was important to me to sort of dream of being like those people or being involved in that world. That was the sort of level, I needed that sort of um, that identification to really get into something. Um, didn't and, and probably couldn't appreciate something coolly um or you know I wasn't going to be watching necessarily Robert Bresson movies at that point um and really appreciating them but uh, and, and 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 this was really just um this just had that had that um in huge amounts for me um and it it's it's interesting because it it's 
there's a certain amount of sort of fetishism in it. The fact that um, Mississippi, James Caan's character, uses a knife in the beginning um, was really important to me. Um, it connects to me with um, James Coburn's character in The Magnificent Seven. For some reason, that 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 sort of image of 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 a knife, or the the sort of um, the um, the resonance of, of of knives, and maybe knives in the world of guns, um, really stood out to me when I was that age. And um, it may have something to do with the fact that you know it just happened that I grew up in an area at a time where there were a lot of knives around, um, a lot of people carried knives and there was a fair amount of knife violence and i had experienced by that age you know people being threatened with knives people being stabbed um just that they, they were around and perhaps sort of changing that sort of very frightening reality into uh, a more attractive artistic fantasy made it that bit more powerful but at the same time i you know that would this movie had a lot of that. I mean, you had the the knife idea with 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 Mississippi, but then because he can't shoot um, and he can't just go on using a knife, um, he gets a special gun. He gets a sawn off shotgun that he wears in a in a holster. And it's another sort of you know that when you're that age, or I think for a lot of people at least, and for me definitely, when you're that age, that I that those sort of these magic objects that sort of alter reality, and you need that to get into works of art at that age. Um, and that was, you know, and then of course with the, with the James Caan, uh, with the James Caan character and the John Wayne character was definitely a father son idea there. Um, you know, um, there's a lot in this film, like there is in, of course, in, in, in so many Westerns, there's a huge amount in there about male friendship, um, about male love, basically, um, those areas are very, um, those areas are very, but they're fascinating. Um, the the sort of um, the the rituals of and the ways that 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 men express love for each other. Um, you know, um, absolutely, including um, you know, I, I think very very often, um, you know, either subconsciously or explicitly. Um, gay um themes um are very big and very very big in, in in western movies um and i think it's even you know you don't i wouldn't want to sort of put some kind of hard line between um between sort of there are films um the gunfighter the okay corral the burt lancaster uh kirk douglas film i i I don't think that there's any way that you can you can realistically argue that that's not sort of um, definitely a love story, and it's a love story between the Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp character. Um, you know, just just absolutely. Now, whether that was you know whether that was deliberate, whether that was um, whether that was deliberate or was subconscious, it doesn't really. Well, it, it is interesting and it does matter, but that that's definitely uh, you know uh, a, a gay love story to to me but i don't want to you don't you know you there are th these things are on a continuum about uh, on a particular subject on a subject of like of male interaction of male friendship of male love and how it's expressed uh male companionship and um that you know i, I wouldn't want to draw too sort of clear a line between one thing and another although it is really really fascinating to think about some of the you know when you think about some of the people who you know about some people writing films back in in the 1950s 40s 50s 60s 70s where you had to be more coded perhaps in in how you did things and and you know people who gay writers writing um you know writing gay stories but having to code it um is obviously really sad but it's also something that's 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 really that's really interesting and and really fascinating and this film for me would definitely have been um operating on a subconscious level in terms of um of negotiating male relationships of father-son relationships and and male friendships and i think sort of still um 
I think sort of still uh, does for me. It's still going on in there, for for better or for worse. As I said, a lot of my my view of the world, a lot of how I see things, is was partly formed at least by, but well, largely formed by movies, uh, but partly formed by you know these films, these um these these westerns with their sometimes simplistic morality not always simplistic morality but my understanding may have been at the age of 12 may have been more simplistic than the films actually often are themselves um you know and again it, when you see the um i don't think i, I wouldn't have said this uh maybe five ten years ago but i i think in a not taking this too seriously but you know when you look at some of the quote-unquote role models that some young men now um are being offered and i'm not going to name names you can um you can guess probably if you're listening you know at this time in sort of um in 2023 um you look at some of those people and you know and you think gosh you know the fictional characters portrayed by robert mitchum and and, and john wayne were far from perfect as role role models for young men, but they were a lot better than than some that we have um, at the moment. But I guess you can always that's you can always make those comparisons. You can pick who you want to compare to who, or what you want to compare to what, at any and come up with whatever answer you want at that at, at any given time. I guess this film was written by Lee Brackett. It's one of quite a number of collaborations between her and um, Hawks and John Wayne. Lee Brackett during her lifetime was probably best known as a science fiction author. She was known as the queen of the space operas because of her John Stark series, which was very much a um, daring do amongst the planets type series. But her first novel, No Good for a Corpse, it came out in 1944, was a kind of hard-boiled mystery um, novel, and it was read by Howard Hawks, and when they were making The Big Sleep, and take a moment to take this in, they thought that William Faulkner needed a little help writing the screenplay. Uh, Hawks is supposed to have said, get me that guy Brackett, because uh, he'd read the novel and he really uh, liked it and didn't know that Lee Brackett was a woman. But yeah, she wrote um, she wrote the partly the screenplay for The Big Sleep and she wrote the screenplay eventually for um, all three of these films that we've been talking about for Rio uh, Bravo, El Dorado and Rio Lobo. I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but I have always thought that the women in those three movies um are unusually well-rounded and unusually interesting from sort of the quote-unquote tomboy boyish type characters of the younger women to the um the fact that there is a a noticeable amount of um self self-awareness uh self-empowerment and an obvious desire desire that the the female characters actually sort of own um and seem comfortable with and i don't know if that this is something that i i, I thought before i realized um that the person who wrote it before i knew lee Brackett um was uh was a woman so i really do think that there was something um useful and there was something interesting and valuable in in having um having a woman write um screenplays for these as we discussed in some ways very macho or very masculine or very male um stories particularly at the time that these were being you know through the 50s to the 70s at the time when when these films were being made called up friend of the podcast anthony litton to have a talk about El Dorado and about three films in this sort of series and about the idea of remakes in general. We're here to talk about remakes, or we're here we to talk about in relation to um, in relation because you um, sort of set me straight on that on that topic, and I remembered it when I was talking about El Dorado. 
Right. So I was talking about El Dorado and recording stuff about El Dorado and then thinking about Rio Bravo and El Dorado and Rio Lobo yeah. and the whole remake thing. And I thought, Anthony's a guy I should, whose voice I should get on tape um, in regards to that um, and how that works and why it works um, or if it works yeah. and what might possess someone to do it. That's a particular, that, that trilogy is a particular, it's funny that people don't talk about it that much. It's a particularly yeah. unusual and strange example of it. And it, I even kind of wonder how Hawks got to, I don't know if Hawks, Hawks was in a position where he could do pretty much what he wanted or not. But Well, it's, it's, it's actually kind of interesting because like uh, El Dorado was made, like he was in his 70s, mm. you know, and he, he wasn't the consistent hit maker that he had been. Like the 60s weren't kind to Hawks. Yeah. Um, and I actually was reading a little bit about it yesterday because I thought, oh, fuck, I have to talk about this tomorrow. And, <laughs> and I didn't do a lot. But like one thing I came across was that actually it had been based on a completely different novel, El Dorado. Uh, yes, it is based on a novel and I uh, called 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 the faults in their stars or something like that yeah, no the stars like in that. their courses the stars in their courses yeah and yeah. and he started to make that movie and at the scene of the boy who gets shot in the gut and then kills himself mm. is is from that but then okay. he kind of he lost faith in the story yeah he was like this isn't gonna work so he's like oh shit what'll i do he's like well <laughs> rio bravo worked <laughs> Because, like, everybody's on set. Yeah, know? yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're making the movie. And he's like, oh, shit. Uh, this isn't going to be good. So he, this isn't going to be good. So he, um, you know, was like, he has to, on a dime, change the movie completely. And he just, you know, and, and he's so confident as a filmmaker that he can just make scenes work. Yeah. So that he's just like, okay, we're just going to do Rio Bravo again. It's interesting because, according to Wikipedia, at least, Robert Mitchum says that he was sold the movie um, as having kind of no script. Yeah, he, yeah. That he, he was told that he asked what the story was and Hawke said, there's no story, just characters. Yeah. Um, which then feels strange because you watch the movie and you go, well, it actually feels very scripted because it's, it feels very planned because it's clear, you know, because it's one of three movies that have almost exactly the same plot. So that, yeah. that's the thing. It's like I think it's like what's interesting about it is Hawks wasn't interested really in the story, mm. but he knew he needed one. <laughs> yeah, you know, but like he wasn't interested in the story, but he need you need something to hang everything on. Yeah. So rather than like put a lot of work into a new story, because he didn't care about that, he's like he just grabbed an old one, and used that as kind of the clothesline to hang his new scenes on, his new sequences on, and you know, like and the movie is quite different in terms of what it's about. Like uh, Rio Bravo is about, I mean, it's kind of a repost to High Noon, I seem to mm-hmm. remember. Mm-hmm. High, Noon, High Noon is uh, Gary Cooper yes, asking um, everyone for help. And nobody helps him. And he's in his time of crisis, he's left to face his yeah. alone. And, and, and Hawks was disgusted by this because he's like, well, no, a real man doesn't ask for help. So Rio Bravo is the opposite. Rio Bravo is John Wayne constantly pushing away everybody's offer. Yeah. yeah. And people insist on helping him anyway, goddammit. Mm. So it's it's you know maybe if Gary Cooper had been more of a real man he would have got help if you just exactly. just say you don't want it that's how you get it that's right that what John Wayne did and then you know but El Dorado is not really about that at all El Dorado is about like getting old really mm. you know everybody's diminished by their age and pain uh, and you know their old injuries like that 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 injury john wayne has of the yeah. blood in his spine and it's, it's very it's like a very practical real thing but it's also kind of metaphorical thing, yes mm. you know and the fact that it just start, it flares up just at the very worst times it's like yeah kind of yeah mm. when it's like you're losing your and it's and that's that's a very different take than it's a very different story than rio bravo i say story is the wrong word but it's a very different set of concerns than rio bravo had so he's making a very different movie with the same plot essentially yeah Mm. which is very interesting. And I think, you know, one of the things I think when I think about remakes is I think one of the people's are disdain, one of the reasons people are disdainful of remakes is because they kind of, if people don't engage with movies, if they don't think about them a lot, they just engage with them as kind of entertainment. Like they watch a movie once, which is obviously a perfectly reasonable way to, to approach movies. 
But like, if you do that, then you probably think that all the emotions you experience, like, oh, what's going to happen? Oh my God. Oh, wow. You know, all this catharsis. You probably think that's because you were surprised, you know, mm-hmm. that it was things were revealed to you and that's why it worked. And you're like, well, it won't work again because I already know what happens. Whereas in reality, it's a much more complicated thing. It's not about surprise at all. What re- you're, not, you're not feeling surprised. What you're feeling is empathy with the characters who are feeling surprised. Yeah. So like, because really, like, you know, movie, you, you, most movies, you know what's going to happen. Yeah. Like, you know, the Avengers are going to be Thanos eventually. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, John Wayne is not going to get killed by Nels McLeod. You know what I mean? Like, there's really, looked at on that level, there isn't any suspense. But you don't feel that when you're watching the movie because you weren't empathizing with the characters and the characters don't know what's going to happen. John Wayne doesn't know he's not going to be killed by Nels McLeod and you empathize with him, you know? Mm -hmm. So you're feeling what he's feeling. Yeah. Even though you know what's going to happen, that doesn't matter. In the moment, you are with him. Uh, And like Sixth Sense is is, is a great example, I think, of a movie, which is everybody associates with a twist. Yeah. And the twist is the revelation, and that's like, everybody gasps, and you think that well, the, the cool thing that was cool about that movie is the twist. Yes, yeah, so you can but never you, watch it again. But... but if you but if you do watch it again, mm. it still works, mm. you know, because it's still a powerful emotional experience because you're with Bruce Willis in that moment, himself finally understanding what happened, you know. Mm-hmm. So you you don't get surprised in the same way, but you still have the emotional connection with the the, the, the surprise. And what yeah. it means, you know? Absolutely. It kind of relates a little bit as well. And if you think about like Bresson movies and stuff where you just yeah. strip, the, strip the plot out altogether in some ways. And there's still a deep emotional connection to what's happening with the characters and to the characters. Um, even though he takes such time to sort of take away the whole, take away, not take, but kind of almost take away, or he would say take away the sort of tricks of a plot altogether. Yeah. But the bare, the, the the sort of bare essentials of what you are recognizing as human, is yeah. is still there, and that's you still has the same emotional, still has the same emotional impact. Yeah, because um, people, because people like in a naive way, and I, I don't mean naive in a, I mean it in a more technical sense. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't mean people are naive, just that mm-hmm. they're approaching it in kind of a shallow way which is, you know, what they remember is the story. So they think that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But like what a movie is, is a lot of, it's like tone and character and performance. And, you know, there's a whole kind of, there's a whole layers of what a movie provides to you, which aren't story. Mm. And you need the story, you need it. But like your experience of it, the story is only one part of that experience. But people tend to think that that's the only important thing. Yeah, it's like you. I mean, it's. I'm thinking about El Dorado, thinking about cowboy movies, like watching them when I was young. I would have seen this film when I was very young on the telly on a Saturday morning. Yeah. But like that, it's it's kind of that you can look at it in sort of the course of someone's sort of life or your maturation in terms of artistic appreciation. When you're young, you need something to, you know, when, when I saw El Dorado first, I know I, I really sort of identified with or I hooked on to the sort of James Caan character. Yeah. Um, and I hooked on to things like, you know, just the sort of the coolness of his using a knife and then getting the getting the, the ridiculous sawn off shotgun thing that he has a holster for and 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 the kind of father relationship with John Wayne. And he just it's a real I, I want to be that guy feeling you know one of my favorite and again i saw it as a kid and i had mm. no idea what was or anything mm. uh, and it wasn't until and there's one moment with james character that stuck with me for years and it wasn't until years later when i was watching Eldorado, like because it was a hawks film i was like oh shit that's that thing i always remembered from when i was a kid which is james can diving under the horses yes and the yeah the horses jump like, over him yeah and he says a horse will not step on a man mm. and i was like that is the coolest fucking thing yeah and, you know, yeah. but also you're kind of like, I'm pretty sure those horses stepped on that dummy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure, A, that wasn't James Caan. And I'm pretty sure that lots of people got trampled by horses. In, um, yeah. Both stunt, stunt men and women and horses were not valued very highly. Yeah. Um, 
So mm-hmm. like, like it's bullshit in the yeah. extreme, but it's so cool. And that's well, as a kid, I saw that on TV and was like, whoa. Yeah, and that, that kind like, of stuff think... gets you hooked yeah. at that age, and then yeah. and then as you get older, you see more in it and you understand it in a in a, in a kind of in a different way. Anyway, a deeper yeah. way or a different way. But I think that that's like even that's always happening. Like even when you're 50 years old, all those levels are still present. Like and I think all those things are always happening in everybody's. If, yeah. we, if you ask someone what happened, like you know, if you're trying to tell me about about the new Spielberg film or the, the Meet the Fablemans, you you have to tell me the story yeah. to an extent. You know what I mean? You yeah, have yeah. to say it's about a kid and his parents, and you know, you have to tell the story. But like that's not why you. And the more you know someone, the more you can get straight to like, well, this is the story, but this is why I loved it. Yeah. But if you're explaining it to someone you don't know and you don't know how you know you don't you're not simpatico with then you will you have to tell someone the story you have to say this is what happens before you say anything else yeah and like yes so i i'm not at all saying a story isn't absolutely crucial possibly the most important thing but it's just not the only thing you know uh far from it and i feel like i feel like people treat remakes as if they're all that gus van sant remake of psycho yeah, which you is know? shot by shot or something. Uh, yeah. yeah, whereas mm. in fact, that is literally the only time that ever happened. Yeah, you know? which is probably why he, I mean, I'm not, but like, that's probably why he did that because as, yeah. a, one-off, as a one-off, what would happen yeah. if it's like yeah. the, man, the man who wrote, um, what's that, um, the Borke story about the guy who, who writes Don Quixote. Yeah. Um, he loves Don Quixote so much that he he rewrites it again, but yeah. it's just a, the story gets to be amazing in, in, in how like he doesn't copy it. Yeah, he, he literally. He, yeah, <laughs> he lived. He he lives this so that he can. He lives Cervantes's life kind of thing so that he can perfectly rewrite the story that's already been written. Yeah, um, and yeah, I, yeah. I, maybe there was a little bit of that in the in the Gus Van Sant cycle. Yeah, kind of, what happens if we make a movie that is just exactly the same movie? Yeah, and it's like, uh, and it, people think that all remakes are like that, but they're mm. never like that. They're never like that. You know, everything. You know, because they can't be, and. Uh, I think the other reason people are suspicious of remakes sometimes is that if they really liked the original, they kind of worry that the new one will displace the original in the public consciousness. Yeah. And, you know, that's a legitimate fear. But, like, if it does, it's probably because it was better. Mm. Like, nobody thinks of the two versions of the Maltese Falcon that were made before John Huston came along. Yes. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure they were perfectly fine movies in their way, but you know, uh, Sydney Greenstreet and you know Humphrey Bogart, and Mary Astor, and you know, like it's just better. Yeah. <laughs> and so, therefore, that's the one that that remains. Same with like His Girl Friday, you know, a few different versions of the front page. Yeah. Uh, His Girl Friday is just better. Yeah, different elements come together, and often it's like it is just the cast or whatever. It's like it just yeah. works better. This cast works, better. and that's a big thing. With like, you will have your favorite. Um, you know, I, you know, I could really break down of those three sort of those Hawks sort of um, Hawks is proto assault on precinct thirteen movies. Like I could, yeah. I could break down. El Dorado is my favorite. Yeah. Um, Rio Lobo is my least favorite. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and you could break it down as to why. Um, but I can well, I'm, say I'm, I'm interested in why, because objectively speaking, Rio Bravo is the best one. Yes, I, I think it is. I, I think it is the best one. I think it's just that I have a real fondness for a Robert Mitchum. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's largely it. Robert Mitchum and 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 James Khan. The only with the thing that makes me really cringe is the James Khan doing his impression of a Chinese oh, person. That's so bad. Just like even at the time there was no need for like even at the time you would think yeah. somebody. Well, there was never any need, but you would think even at the time somebody might say there's no need for that. And also, it doesn't work. He just walks no. up to. It's supposed to somehow help him to walk up to the guard and punch him and. And, and knock him out with one punch, which is another bugbear of mine. But like, yeah, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't work. It wouldn't make no, it any does. difference. To... He doesn't need that at all. He could just walk up. He could have just walked up. If the guy doesn't <laughs> shoot him as a pretend Chinese person, then he wouldn't have shot him yeah. as himself. It's just, and I, I can't even imagine that anybody thought it was funny. I just don't know. And Hawks was really good. Like his, his strength is interactions like his strength as a director is the in yeah. character interaction i don't know what he thought he was doing with that yeah, and it's everybody just... everybody makes mistakes you know but yeah 
true. But that, I think is I love the James Khan character. Um, I you know what I prefer you know, Mitchum I, to 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 um Dean to, Martin. To, to Dean Martin. Um, and I think that's largely it. You know, I love the Mrs. I love the ride, Bowley ride. You know, I still say those things. I still when I'm two things that I could sometimes use to sort of g myself up privately when I'm when I'm feeling scared or nervous is like I I will do the. I'll do the. I'll just say Wu Tang sometimes, to me pointlessly, <laughs> and other times, uh, and and other times I will like perfectly unironically say, "Ride, Bowley, ride," um, <laughs> you know, just to get myself. It's like it stuck with me that much, you know. But it's a better. But but real Bravo is a, is a better movie in in lots of ways. Yeah, I, it is. It's more so. But I love. I also love Eldorado. <laughs> real Lobo is not so great. Let's be honest. No, it's not so great. It's quite confused. They're all a little bit yeah. confused. They all have a little bit of a like. Oh, the, it was going one way and then it goes another. Yeah. Um. They all have a little bit of that. But um. But real Lobo, the worst probably. Real Bravo, I think, has by far the best. Um. I, I don't mean to be, but um. I don't like like talking anybody down, but like, and I'm I'm not actually. I but real Bravo has by far the best sort of uh, romantic element to it. Yeah. By far the best interaction. The, the Angie Dickinson oh. and John T. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what I was trying not to. Uh, but but well, like, I, one thing I really gosh. do love about El Dorado mm. is I and I found I remember watching as a teenager and like being very aware how sexy Joey is. Yeah, uh, mm. and, but it's funny because she is like. The most sixties goddamn looking cow, cow yes. girl you ever she saw. She certainly is. Yeah, she could just be about to do the the Watusi. <laughs> yeah, she really is. It's like completely no no pretense whatsoever. Yeah, she's but in yeah, a completely different era. Yeah, she's she's else. she is here to represent the young people herself and James Khan are here to. Yeah, well, James Khan weirdly always looked like he was about fifty. Yeah, that's true. Even when he was well, like everybody off. looks. It's like everybody looked older in those days. Everybody yeah. smoked all the yeah, time. Yeah, true. True. Uh, mm. But yeah, she was uh, Joey. I remember I made a big impression on me as a teenager, as a character. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Angie Dickinson made a huge impression on Whoa. me as a, 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 a so much so, and it's really horrible because Charlene, um, the woman in um, in Rio in El Dorado, Charlene Holt, I think, is great as well. And it was a really nice. Like there is some kind of complication as to just exactly what the nation, nature of her relationship with with um, with the two main characters is. Yeah, um, which isn't actually very well resolved, but at least it's kind of it's a little, there's a good amount of like there's there's at least a decent sort of real uh, recognition of like female desire in yes. in, all, in all those movies. All the yeah. women feel like they want things and sort of know what they want and um and yeah actually you know feel sexual desire and things. They're not like um they're not um yeah they 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 all feel like they 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 actually have an interior life and they actually have desires, which is good. Well, that's, that's something Howard Hooks was always known for. Mm. Is people always say that about it, like back to like the big sleep or, mm. you know, even only angels have wings, which is yeah. 1939, you know, and like, they're clearly like women as women of the period. They're not yeah. like, it's not yeah. like these things where you see a modern woman saying, I demand equal pay in yeah. like, in like 1800s when she's being married to a duke or something yeah um it's not like that like they're they're within the social construct but they within that they are they have agency and desire and you know yeah uh, yeah and hawks always had that i think he he loved strong women in his life and his work yeah which is a great thing to it's a it's a it's a great thing to see i was just thinking like you know they're not they're not the worst they're not the best but they're like yeah but i mean by of, our modern standards you would kind of yeah. say oh you know they're very mm. they're all they're all like incredibly hot you know <laughs> yeah exactly yeah 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 but i mean it's like even by modern standards i think like they actually do have a bit more it's funny i mean some of the go to some or just you know watching films with carla um you know when i we tried to do the kind of because she's a huge reader and likes art and stuff but she's never been a big film fan for yeah just because it wasn't a part of her upbringing really but um she you know i've said this before on here it's like um um she when we first met she would say that she just didn't really like films and she had that kind of thing of like films aren't really art yeah. Um, but then she would say like, "Oh, I do like a few films," and then she'd she'd name the films. You're like, "Oh, so you don't really like films?" 
but the five films that you really do like happen to be one directed by Nicholas Rogue, one directed by Pete, John Waters, one directed by, you know, like, it's like, you sort of, you do like films, you just haven't seen a lot of good ones, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, yeah. she yeah. said, like, I do like Hairspray, there's this film Hairspray, um, and it's kind of manky, and, but I love it, it's really great, and, yeah. you know, I love, um, I love The Witches, you know, the, yeah. I, I, that's, that's great, and it's like, and everything she mentioned, oh, the black, the original Black Stallion, that's a great film, and you're like, yeah, every yeah. film that you like is a really, really, you know, quote unquote, good film, you just, you just have only been kind of told that, you know, Don Simpson movies are what films are, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when we sort of... Although Maverick is really good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put Top Gun Maverick is great. I will defend, I I, I will I defend watch that it. film. I will defend that film all the way. I can't. I, I that can't. is... It's so good. I can't. I can't. I can't watch a Tom Cruise movie. I just. I. I. I know this is. You know. I'm. I'm. Yeah. I'm, I'm denying myself some of life's greatest yeah, pleasures. He's, he, he's not suffering. You're suffering. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Tom Cruise. Well, you know, sometimes I get. I get missed calls. You know, from numbers I don't know, and I'm pretty sure it's probably Tom Cruise. <laughs> you know. It's between a remake of. Excuse me. Is there a difference between a remake of an original film? and another version of a previously filmed book or play. Are those, should those be approached differently? Because actually, like most most remakes are that. They're not actually a remake of a, an original movie. They're a remake, yeah. they're another version of a novel. Of a, of or, a source of some sort of, well, a book, uh, basically, yeah, or yeah. a short story. And El Dorado is yeah. not. El Dorado, and, and like when Hitchcock remade The Man Who Knew Too Much, that also was a, a remake of a, an original film. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, the, all these Disney things they're doing are live-action versions of animation. Yeah. You know, yeah. Are, but most most remakes are are just other versions of the source material. Yeah. Like when the Coen Brothers did True Grit, it's just it's just a different version. It's of that a novel. different version of that novel. Although that's a really interesting one to think about because you know, obviously, the Coen Brothers know the John Wayne movie. Yes. So what are they really remaking? I th- I think they probably love the novel too, but like. Yeah. It, it, can they even say, like, if you're the Coen brothers, can you honestly say whether you're remaking one or the other or both? Well, I have you to say, I think, I, I think in the case of True Grit, it really does feel like they're making the novel. Because like, it's closer to the novel. Cause it's... And also it's like, yeah, it doesn't really feel like the John Wayne film at all. Uh, you know? It doesn't, you're right, yeah. And it, it's, it's and way closer to uh, the plot of the novel. And Jeff Bridges is a much less vain actor than John Wayne. Yeah, and like not like John Wayne's vanity is like it's not a problem. I'm not chastising him, but like he was always very aware of being the hero and the yeah. Uh, oh, one of even, the yeah. one of the things I've noticed like watching El Dorado again is like just the 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 amount of posing that um <laughs> like Wayne and Mitchum and James Cam like the, the 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 men in cowboy movies do an awful lot of posing like actual yeah. like sort of catwalk posing. They strike. Yeah. Wayne is constantly striking. Move a little, pose. Move a little, pose. Yeah, and it's very self-conscious. Well, and there's another interesting thing about Howard Hawks is he's kind of like, I guess, Hitchcock in that using stars is key mm. to his, his. Like other people use stars as actors, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And they make movies. They're they're using the star because they get financed, but the reason they're but they want the actor to give yeah. performance. Mm. Whereas like. Hitchcock and you know Howard Hawks and others are using stars because they're stars. Yeah, and they're like they're using the star as a shortcut to tell the audience how to feel about the character. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, yeah, it's not mm. like they're using the star. They're not like saying, "Oh, here's this guy; he's going to act." They're saying, "He's the star. You know everything about him. You need to know already." Yeah, you know Let's John Wayne when yeah. he arrives in town. Yeah, yeah, uh, and mm. that's part of his. That's that's a key part of his uh, storytelling strategy. Mm. is to use stars that way uh he like he doesn't use them accidentally it's like he could, he could, that movie wouldn't work without john wayne in it yeah and all three movies is like kind of well here this is a john wayne because we used to say that when when my you know my dad when i was young used to would call a movie a john wayner yeah you know yeah, and yeah. it wasn't by accident you know it was like because you were meant to know this is a john wayner and he was a particular example of there was very little um 
variety in in who he played if you know what i mean yeah and that's why and that's why i feel like the true grit remake is different because mm. jeff bridges is obviously a star mm. but like he's under like he's got the, he's under a beard he's got yeah thing, he's like putting on this whole character and he's not the main character you know Hayley yeah Samson, he's the main character yeah uh so it's like it, it does feel like a, a different take on the novel but you know something that was really interesting i thought was did you ever see that movie dr sleep no, the, which is The Shining. Um, yeah, yeah. Which I because mm. you know Stephen King obviously wrote Doctor Sleep as a sequel to his novel The Shining. Yeah, but when they filmed it, and I didn't love the movie because I didn't love the book. Honestly, like, I, I'm a big mm. I'm a big Stephen King fan, but that one didn't really do it for me. Mm. Um, but one thing that was really interesting about the movie is that when he goes to visit uh, the Overlook Hotel, it's from the movie. Yeah, The Shining. Mm. You know, like when they show flashbacks. They're not like using the book and just showing it a hotel that they're using the the movie the, the shining the, yeah yeah hotel. the imagery mm. of Kubrick's version mm. specifically and it works incredibly well but it's a very interesting choice when you think about it yeah you know like yeah. it's 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 kind of a that that's not obvious to do it yeah that. no it isn't because it's it not it's not a sequel. To the movie, yeah, it's, it's a novelization of the sequel to the book. Yeah, you know, but and I there's guess been a couple of different versions to some yeah. effort to connect to the movie because, like, he knows that's that's the that's the selling point and the dominant like thing in the public consciousness is not Stephen King's yeah The Shining, it's Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Yeah, and it's kind of a bold choice, mm. uh, but it works really well. But it's, I, I just found it fascinating. Yeah, because it could really go, now that I think of it, it's, you know, it could really go wrong for you because you are then definitely setting yourself up as a, like, kind of comparing yourself to yeah one of Kubrick's most well-liked yeah. films. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so there's a little bit of, like, kind of, oh, yeah, The Shining, that was good, but here's here's my version and it doesn't come off like that, I have to say. Oh, yeah. 